Welcome to The Open Bell, a podcast for trumpet players, by trumpet players, and a cornet guy. I'm your host, Bill Stoneman, and I'm joined by my good friends and fellow trumpet geeks, Joey Tartell and Brian Appleby Weinberg. This episode of The Open Bell is brought to you by the World Trumpet Federation. Now you can simply go to worldtrumpetfederation.com for all your trumpet needs. No annual fees, firewalls, or other barriers between you and the most current helpful trumpet information. Home to the Open Bell podcast, the World Trumpet Federation also has its own YouTube channel and other important materials. Stay tuned for more details or just go to worldtrumpetfederation.com to see what we're up to. And the Kenny Rampton Plunger Mute. Guys, I'm going to need your help with this one. This is the coolest new thing, right? This super in tune mute, uh, even across the horn. Joey, what do you got for us on this? Kenny has taken a plunger mute and said, I'm just going to make this better. He has just made a better plunger. And if you're worried about, well, I like to play open. Do I put a hole in it? Do I not put a hole in it? He's got the Kenny penny. So all you have to do is on the outside, you turn it and it's either open closed you get it both ways best of both worlds and it's a little bit deeper so you don't have to worry about the pitch it is just fantastic go buy one right now pitch is amazing right like you demoed this thing for us a week or so ago and it just locks in absolutely it's nails and there's no no stick you don't take the stick out brian brings up the only downside it does not come with a handle plunger mute no stem no stem there it is so listen if you haven't checked out the kenny rampton plunger mute go ahead and do so you will not be sorry and kenny thanks for your support and now a little about the show we essentially have three segments warming up a couple things and no offense we'll use these segments to cover information that joey brian and i think is important gentlemen shall we This is a segment we call Warming Up, and it gives us a chance to ease into the show by talking about some things that are on our radar. Brian, what type of uh, cornet issue do you have for us today on this trumpet podcast? I'm actually going to break with protocol this week. (laughs) I'm not talking about cornet. Unbelievable. I don't... Who, what, what happened Wait, to Brian? Where's, is this video? Give, <laughs> it looks like Brian. It looks like Brian. <laughs> Sounds like Brian. I'm going to give a shout out to Brian Shook, Dr. Brian Shook, and mm-hmm. his Doctor. book, his book on, um, on uh, Vacchiano, Last Stop, Carnegie Hall, um, because in the book, I, so it's, it's well written. He did a really good job with it. Um, but in the book, he has a chapter that deals with... Um, essentially Vacchiano's rules for uh, musical interpretation. Um, And I found them fascinating, Um, a couple in particular, um, and then a couple I had never even considered, but I kind of do as a player. And I'm not sure, um, you know, I studied with Tony Plogue, and uh, Tony studied with Tom Stevens, and Tom Stevens is a Vacchiano student um, and has a lot of um, a lot of uh, like the family tree. A lot of that stuff. Yeah, it's wow. family tree. Um, and so, you know, there are a few things that I've done a lot as a player that I just thought were the thing to do. Um, and then it turns out that, it's time that these guys have these rules. Um, a lot of it is um, one of the most important rules uh, is that meter matters in terms of musical inflection. So he's adamant about how you play the opening to pictures that you can't land on the D natural at the end of the first measure and that you have to lean on the, the, um, the C natural and the start of the second measure. Um, and so the D natural is actually the softest note in the first measure. Um, so it's really, it's really fascinating. Um, and, uh, and I think that Brian outlines them really well um, and talks about them really well in the book. It's in chapter four in the book. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to, to Brian about, about the book. It's been out for a while. Um, Tom Stevens is notoriously um, uh, standoffish um, and um, adamant about his beliefs about music and about Vacchiano. And uh, he wrote a really um, cool little um, blurb on the, for the back cover. And he said, um, 
I, uh, I read the book with, with great trepidation because almost every time <laughs> I, I read a published account of someone I've known, I always wonder who in the world the writers are talking about. So <laughs> this book is a notable exception. Um, so I think that's high praise. I actually bought the, um, the two-hour Chosen Veil video of Tom Stevens' masterclasses mm-hmm. um, where he talks at length about the, the, um, the rules and um, it's available on Amazon. Um, and he talks really in detail with, he, with students coaching in masterclass about how you inflect based on the meter. It's really a fascinating, a fascinating discussion. Yeah, bravo, Brian. Yeah, so yeah, um, yeah Brian, this isn't going to make you play even louder, is it? These rules, is there anything in there that's going to... There's some dynamic rules. Oh, no. <laughs> like Have you in read the low them? Regi- in the no- low register, play louder. Have you read them? <laughs> I, I wonder. Those. I, no, I, I wonder. With uh, I agree with what you're talking about with the meter and with most of the music that we're playing. But do you wonder that with some of the more modern stuff being uh, written, especially intentionally across bar lines or notation, that there may be some adjustments that might be needed for more modern pieces? Probably. I think Tom Stevens was a champion of contemporary music, right? Was, he, yep. he, yes. did, he wrote yep. and, oh, and he performed and recorded tons of contemporary music. He does talk about when a composer purposely blurs the bar line that doesn't let you off the hook from actually making sure that people know that there's a bar line there. Ooh, I like that. Really fascinating. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. That's really good. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for bringing that up. That's cool. And congrats to Brian Shook. Uh, I wanted to talk about, you know, we're all all wondering about what's going to happen here. And so many of the major musical organizations have canceled things for the fall and all that. And, and I'm just kind of hoping that we all stay focused on this, getting back to live performance. I mean, recordings are great, but I I just, I'm not curious. I'm going to share two, two quick things here and then ask you guys to do the same, but there's a couple of standout live performances that I recall that changed the way I think about everything. Um, one, when I was a master student in Kentucky and I, I went to hear the Lexington Phil and my teacher, Kevin Eisensmith, was playing Tartini on the first half, which was amazing, sparkling, wonderful. It was great to hear him do that. And, and then, of course, I just stayed for the concert so we could hang later. No offense, Brian. And, um, <laughs> I don't understand what that means. I know. And uh, and they were doing Hindemith, uh, Mathis de Mahler. And oh, I thought, yeah. you know, okay, I've heard recordings, not a huge fan. I walked out of there changed because I got to hear it live and got to see the interaction and, and then was absolutely convinced. Um, and then the other one uh, was being at ITG in uh, Banff, Canada, Alberta, Canada, right? And um, when Sergei Nikaryakov, did the Haydn cello concerto on the four valve flugelhorn. Yeah. And it yeah. was, it was one of those moments like, like, and I knew I was, I was sitting in something that was incredibly special. I think everyone in the room, you, you could just feel it. Right. And uh, when he finished played the last note as like, as one entity, that audience rose and applauded, you know, and there's no way, I mean, as spotless as a recording can be, there's no way to, to duplicate that. So just really looking forward to a time to get back to witnessing those things live. What do you guys, any, any standouts for you? I can think back. Most of them seem, I seem to remember the ones from when I was a kid better. I remember being, uh, I think I was about 16 years old and my, my trumpet teacher at the time, a guy named John Rankin, you guys met him. He was playing flugelhorn in the, in the San Antonio brass band when we were at ITG in San Antonio. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he taught at St. Mary's university and ran the bands there and he uh, and freelanced around town. So he called and said, hey, what are you doing this, this Thursday night? And I said, oh, no. he said, okay, come over to my house, wear all black. <laughs> so I come over to his house, I'm wearing all black, and he hands me a, a case to carry. He says, just walk like you know where you're going, walk right behind me, just don't look at anybody, just go. So I walk in with him, we go backstage, we're downtown on the river walk at this little outdoor amphitheater. And uh, he, they were doing some sort of uh, broadcast that was being recorded to be on TV and they picked up a local band to back up Doc Severinsen. So he wow. was playing in this band. So he brought me with him. So we get down there, oh, we walk, yeah. we're backstage. We walk over to the side. He goes, all right, go ahead and grab a seat. So I just waited, snuck out, sat down in the audience and I'm three rows in front of Doc Severinsen <laughs> and seeing wow. it live, 16 years old, live. There's Doc playing and I'm going, wow. 
you know, I'd heard the records. We watched them on right. TV all the time when we could stay up late and check those things out. But that live, in person, it there's nothing like that. You know, yep. that, that seeing that kind of thing in person, you're exactly right. So, you know, and I, uh, you know, I watch a lot of stuff on TV, online, on our computers. And even the live broadcast that we can watch on that, which can be astounding and can be can, great. Can be it's beautiful. just yep. not the same thing as being in the room and being, which is... I hope you're right. I hope that comes back sooner rather than later. I think it will. Like, I feel like as the pendulum swings, you know, I think it'll come back, you know, with a great deal of enthusiasm because I think people are going to hunger for it. But it's frightening. And there's, you think about how many students right now who are missing out on that, you know, this ITG conference canceled, right? Mm -hmm. uh, no NTC this year. There's no, none of those chances to be in the room and hear and see it happen. Yeah, people are out of work for what it's going to amount to something like eight months, right? Right. Not playing concerts. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. And, and, and what a difficult um, time for them economically, but just not having that art being put out into the world. That's uh, it's such a shame. I, I think um, I've, I've seen lots of, lots of great concerts, but um, in Ann Arbor where I grew up, uh, Hill Auditorium used to host amazing shows um, every year and uh, my parents for some reason could get really cheap um, tickets to go see the shows um, and we used to go see Chicago Symphony pretty regularly um, when you know Bud was in his prime um, and they came and uh, on one show uh, they did uh, Till Eulenspiegel and Pictures and Bud played lead the whole night mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like that's quite a concert <laughs> outrageous <laughs> You know, so yeah, that's uh, also saw a um, a concert with um, Christopher Parkening playing guitar. Oh yeah, and, uh, in concert with Yo-Yo Ma on cello when he was just start. I guess when he was just starting out, just wow. really young. Yeah, pretty pretty amazing uh, concerts. Yeah, not not you know, recordings don't do those justice, do they? No, no, those are life altering events. You know, that's great. Absolutely. All right, Joey, what do you got for us today? Well, uh, I might, this might be a little related to Brian and proving that we don't talk about these things beforehand. Uh, <laughs> I've been fascinated at watching a lot of people put a lot of stuff up online. And in doing so, we've gotten people now doing etudes. You know, Hakan's been doing uh, Charlay's, mm -hmm. Jim Wilt's been doing Branson's stuff. I mean, they're, and they're great performances. There are a lot of really terrific performances. But it leads me to this question. How much leeway do we get? Like how far, you know, we do want to make music. But there are things that are written right there on the page. So, you know, how much do you get to move away from that page? And uh, because I think there's a line between making music and making it easier so I can play it. Right. And I sometimes think I see some people that are, well, if I do it now, I can play it if I do it this way. <laughs> and I don't think that's okay. Now, I do think, hey, I think this makes it a more musical, and I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here. And I think maybe the more established as a professional you are, maybe the more leeway you get just based on history. Right. And I'm, I, I'm, I guess maybe that might be okay. You've earned more, a little bit more musical freedom. Maybe. But uh, there are some which I think, but that's just not what's written. <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah. Fidel fidelity to the text and certainly in, so maybe not so much in a brand because they're pretty dry, right? Um, they're pretty just straight ahead. There's not a whole lot of marking. But in something like Charlier, who was masterful about his markings um, and very detailed, so maybe that text doesn't give you as much leeway, but a brand might. Mm. Yeah, what's interesting is, you know, the, the lens I typically put these things through is you've got a student who's learning this, right, who's got to go play that for a panel. And while it's really great to have a certain amount of artistic freedom or leeway, that's not going to translate into a successful audition in many cases. Well, to be right. too far out. Right, because I think that gets us to this when, we, when we're teaching students excerpts, orchestral excerpts, there is a way that they go, right? This yeah, is the right. way this goes. And we kind of have a collective knowledge of what that way is. And there's a there's a range of acceptable way it goes. And so I, I remember a student when I first came to IU came and wanted to play a list. And he played something for me and I said, 
well, listen, you're, you're, you're playing well and you're playing musically, but that's not how that excerpt goes. <laughs> and he started arguing with me about why he was going to play it this way. I said, that's great, but you're never getting past the first round right. without playing it how it goes. So now once you, once you win a job, then you might be able to pull that off in your orchestra, right? Sure. Right. So is that okay that, well, now I get, now I get to do this, but I couldn't, I couldn't win the job that way, but I can perform the job this way. Right. The idea of, well, I know it's not written this way, so kids can't play it this way, but I'm a professional, so I can play it this way. I'm not sure I'm okay with it being that, there being that much leeway and difference there. Yeah. I mean, that's a context issue, right? So you have someone listening, you hear someone play something and it's, it's clear to you that they've sat in the ensemble and they have played that part with people around them, right? Because right. they know their interpretation just exudes this and this happens here. And I know that I have to fit here and, 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 and all those things. But if it's just played, if it's so far outside the lines, it's pretty obvious to the listener that they don't have that context. And the audition often doesn't have much to do with what you actually have to do on the job anyway. Mm. Right. That can be true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, not often a test, but it is a test of whether you can play and whether you can fit in. There was, I heard a great story a few years ago about um, somebody who auditioned for a principal cello position. Um, and they played the, um, there was a Bach as required um, solo piece. And they played the Bach as if they were playing a gamba with all the traditional Baroque inflection. And they played the spots of it. It was an amazing performance. Mm. And the conductor went, that person's not getting past the first round. I don't know what I'm going to get. Whether every time I make a musical decision, I'm going to have to have an argument in front of the orchestra. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot to be said with, for staying inside that box. Yeah. Sends yeah. a message, right? And, and, and if you are thinking of these as, as pieces that we all are going to play, meaning etudes, and you're making these as, as your your expression of them, but then you know can be being used as a reference, then aren't you obligated to stay with what's on the page? You, you can't deviate so far away, right? Yeah, I, I listened to a um, Hardenberger talk about his, his Charlier stuff. So a couple weekends ago, Chosen, Chosen Vale did a Sunday afternoon with Hardenberger for a couple hours. And it was fascinating. Um, people asked that question. You know, um, you are look, I'm looking at the text and you're, you're taking some liberties. Um, and he said, yeah, um, I like to start out with the, correct tempo the written tempo and and um, I find that I've sat with that long enough and I feel justified in making some decisions later on um, which is an amazing he said you know at, sometimes it's ambiguous he said I don't, I don't find Charlie very often ambiguous um, but I, I do think he, he allowed us some room for some interpretation and then our question is yeah he's stretching it in some cases quite a bit um, is that okay for our students or for us? And I mean, I don't know. Hardenberger's, you know, one of one of the greats, right? So yeah, his <laughs> playing his playing is stellar. Yeah, right. yes, so we might want to. I don't know. But you think about the influence. I mean, wield a lot of influence, right? When you right. when you're at that place, think about when you hear uh, anyone, a student, a colleague, whoever, play Artunian. What are you measuring that against? Yep. Right. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to Dachshitzer. It all goes right? to Dachshitzer. Right. It yeah. all goes back, and so, but although, but although how no we, one would play with that kind of vibrato now. No, you wouldn't do that now. Well, but, vibrato. Oh, there it is. <laughs> and we're back. It's not vibrato. But eventually, like, right, you would hope that people start to kind of push things a little bit to, you know, create a new way, have another opinion you know, stretch the musicianship. Exactly. That's, that's yeah. the hard question is, uh, you know, not, is there a line, but where is that line? Right. Yeah. Because it's beautiful playing the, the things that he's putting out that, that you're talking about that Hokan is putting out are oh, just yeah. stunning. It is, it is, yeah. it is absolutely stellar playing. It's beautiful music. Absolutely. And, and I suppose, isn't that part of it too? I mean, look, we're having, we're having a conversation about it. I'll bet a lot of people are right. So there's, there's value in that as well, you know? Sure. And I he's mean, also he's... sitting with it um, the way he's 
the way he prepares to do a concerto or a solo recital um, that he's going to take on the road, he's preparing these in that same way, sitting and contemplating every measure and every decision he makes um, in a real um, intellectual hmm. way um, and artistic way, um, just on a level that most of, well, I mean, we just don't pick up a piece of music and just, we just play through it. We're not making those kind of detailed decisions. He's not making anything up. Um, he's thought every every possibility out and made those decisions. Right. Yeah, good question. I wonder, you got to wonder, There's the, and Joe, you just said it, you hope so. You hope that there's a lot of conversation about these recordings that are out there, especially something like of this quality that it has evoked people to have, you know, to kind of converse about it. Well, right. If it, if it weren't of this quality, it's not, there's nothing to talk about. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if he really, has there been anything, any recordings of him talking about what he did and why he did it? Uh, aside from what Brian just said, I, I wasn't aware of any. Like, yeah. It was, really... it was a fascinating discussion. Well, you talked about, I have my Charlier right here. Yeah, I mean, did he set out to say, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna put, do this with a twist a little bit to see if I can shake things up," or is he? This is just his interpretation of it. It's his interpretation. He says that anything that deviates, he has made a conscious decision to deviate, or he feels like he had permit permission. Um, but he went through a couple. Mm. So he talked about um, he talked about the first measure of the first etude. Ba -ba 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 -da 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 -da. And he said that accented B natural in the first measure on the second grouping, 6-8 grouping, he said can't be louder than the downbeat F natural, even though it's accented, because you still have to have fidelity to the 6-8 mm -hmm. feel and the downbeat. So even though you have that accent, it's accented against the other five notes, not the downbeat of the first measure. Yeah. Well, that's so he's easy. thinking on that level about don't tongue that. it. Just don't tongue it. I'm not I don't get the problem. <laughs> the ultimate the text. The ultimate Stoneman solution. <laughs> just, just stop tonguing it. Yeah. So, so he and then he went. Then he talked about the second, the the second etude, and he said in the second measure, the A flat is the strongest note of the first two measures. Right, because it's the only downbeat you play. Because it's the only That's downbeat. Right. And um, he said, what you hear time and time again is people the f appears as a downbeat or the yeah, they d land flat on the, appears they land on the f yeah, yeah. or the d flat um mm -hmm. and, uh, and so ed carroll did a little conducting thing where he sang it but conducted with it shifted as if the d flat was the downbeat or if you were landing on the f in the first measure and uh, and you know it was really strange to hear it and watch him watch him conduct it um off meter um, but he and then he said I could talk about every measure in every etude like this and wow. the decision I've made so he has he's making really careful decisions I think okay yeah well it's, it's brilliant playing so yeah. as always well now on to the focal point of today's show <laughs> The word virtuoso is an integral part of the musician's vocabulary. We admire anyone who through acquisition of skill and display of artistry earns the title virtuoso. And I thought it might be kind of cool for us to talk about that today. What makes someone a virtuoso to you? Who are the greatest virtuosos that you, that you know of? And how might all of us kind of, kind of lean that way and move in that direction? That's a great topic. I like <laughs> this. I, as trumpet players, I think a a lot of times we get to liking one thing about one player. That person does this well, that person does this well, that person does this well. Mm. But aren't we really looking for, and you know, this is, I, I know we've talked about this a lot uh, privately, you know, that I basically, I, I like to oversimplify. So I think that we're only really doing two things as trumpet players. We need to be able to play the trumpet really well, operate the machine really well, there it is. and then use that to make great music. So mm. aren't virtuosos really just doing those two things at the highest level? They are making music so that you're not even concerned with the operation of the machinery and then just giving it to you and you sit back and go, <laughs> that was great, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we're talking about the greatest of all time, I mean, for us, uh, people of our age, you know, even Bill. Um, <laughs> so I'm sitting it, right here. Exactly. I mean, doesn't this start with Maurice Andre for us? Of course. Like yeah. when you listen to the, um, not just 
how he played and the music he played, but the amount that he put out for us. There were, you know, there was nothing else. When, when, you know, when, when I was in high school and I'm looking for solo recordings of solo trumpet things, there just aren't a lot of, a lot of, a ton of them available, but there's a lot of Maurice Andre. Right. So I buy this and, and all of it is just beautiful music. You know, and, and then when you get to see videos later on, I never I got to see him live, but you see these videos and you just see him standing there looking very calm and relaxed and like nothing's is. really going on. It's it's that's that's virtuosity. What he was exhibiting is that's virtuosity for me. That's where it started. That might be the first one I was conscious of in that way. Right. Um, yeah, to me, it, it's that the virtuosity is an ease, right? Like if you really you hear virtuoso performances because someone made it look like it was so inside for them, so in the wheelhouse that it was just easy for them. And through all that, I think, which allows to the next part for me, which is especially as a trumpet player, that they transport you away from the trumpet. You stop thinking about the trumpet. You start thinking about music. You start thinking about the era and how light and bright it is or whatever, but it pulls you away from that, as you said, from the mechanical aspects of it. And Andre for me was one of the first. Yeah. Because since we are so close in age, <clears throat> Joey, <laughs> it's a thing. We're close in decades. Close in, you're catching up. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> We're close in decades. <laughs> um, but you know, around that time is when, you know, we, you, in our study and all that, I mean, Andre was put right in front of us by our teachers is to say that this is the way to go, you know. I saw Andre do um, Hummel with the DSO uh, summer after 10th grade. Um, and it was just like the record. I mean, it was it was absolutely stunning. We got <laughs> to go backstage and he signed our programs. Um, and uh, yeah, he was just, uh, you know, on his toes, bouncing a little bit in the third movement. Um, and just, you know, spotless and everything sounded beautiful, um, effortless um, and musical. You know, all those musical inflections um, beyond beyond the technical deficiencies of the instrument, you know, mm. or, or the things that we struggle with on the instrument, just totally in control of all of those. So making whatever musical decisions he wanted to, to make. Um, I think some of his ama most amazing stuff is the um, contemporary French literature that he recorded Absolutely. before he was touring. Mm -hmm. um, when he's doing all the piccolo stuff and and the the Haydn and Hummel, there are people paying him lots of money to do that. Um, but those are incredibly flashy and um, brilliant, brilliant recordings. And you know, taking no taking all the yeah. chances, right? Really laying it all on the edge. Now there is a downside to that because I remember hearing him play the Planel Concerto, his recording of the Planel Concerto. You know, piece, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. I'm going to play this. And then I got it and was like. Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Right, because it, it, it makes everything sound playable. Super accessible and playable yeah. and musically and fun and light. And, you know, and then you get it and go, no shot. Right. <laughs> I mean, wow, this is really hard. Well, I'll tell you another one I became very aware of. And this might be a bit controversial, I don't think, in, uh, among us, but among people listening. And I don't know why this is. But Wait, people are listening? There's nobody listening. No oh, one's listening. The, the phone lines are lighting up right now. Are they? Amazing. Yeah, it's, that's it's great. It's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Is this so? When I was an undergrad, is when when Minton Marsalis recorded that cornet uh, uh, carnival album with the Eastman Wood Ensemble. Yeah. So right. I I was playing in the orchestra. There was an orchestra at that time that was doing Bach's B minor Mass with this Bach expert who I think went to high school with Bach. This guy was a, a four thousand years old. <laughs> he was in all the rehearsals and he kind of walk around. But I might have known so, him in grad school. <laughs> exactly. I think you guys knew each other. Yeah. Uh, so I, whenever I could, I would go by the rehearsals, uh, the band rehearsals, and you know, watch watch the rehearsals and watch Winton play and. You know, I obviously we all knew who Wynton Marcellus was at that point. He was already quite famous and, and had been recording and won Grammys on the classical side and on the jazz side. But here I am, I'm watching this in the room. So I go in there, and there's the Eastman Wind Ensemble. There's, there's Wynton sitting there in the rehearsal room, and he starts playing. And, you know, we've all kind of messed around with those cornet solos. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I know how those go. And I'm watching him play thinking, oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. I mean, just stunning stunning playing and i'm watching this going oh that's that's how this goes and these are just the rehearsals right, right? this is before they went on the road and before they recorded and and they did do a short concert for us in eastman theater right before they were going to go in they just kind of got out a very informal hey we're going to get together and just kind of run through all the stuff before we record it and kind of ran through a bunch of the things 
And there it was. I mean, truly, I'm watching this guy that would, was very pleasant and very nice. He was like, oh, we could, you know, we'd see him in the hall. Hey, I'd be happy to come talk to you guys. What do you want? Come by and talk right. to us. He was great. He was absolutely great and giving and warm and lovely. And I watch him play. And so this is now a real person. Because for me, Maurice Andre was just mm. an idea of someone that was sure. on a record, mm -hmm. but not really a real person. This is somebody I'm standing in the hallway talking to and then puts the horn up. And I went, wow, that true virtuosity. And and I don't, I, I actually, I, I think I do know why. Uh, there have been, especially within the trumpet community, Winton's been, for some reason, a controversial character, I think is only for one reason. It's only because he's so good. That's my opinion on this, is yeah. that, you know, I remember back in, in the 80s and in the 90s, you know, the classical players would say things like, well, you know, I mean, he's really a jazz player and he plays the classical stuff okay. And the jazz players would say the opposite. Well, I mean, he's really a classical player, he's the jazz stuff okay. I think just out of sheer intimidation, because I'm watching right. this guy play <laughs> jazz and it's spectacular and I'm watching him play these cornet solos and it's well, spectacular. I'm watching him play classical literature and it's spectacular. That guy, that guy's a true virtuoso. Well, this is what I, I was going to kind of circle back to Winton, but you already kind of put us in this place in that Winton is virtue. He's a virtuoso in all things, like in, in communication, in history, in, in his advocacy for jazz, the fact that he can span all of the genre. I mean, it's, it's truly amazing. Mm -hmm. I don't know that anyone else has done that. If you look at the recordings, everything from the small group stuff, right, to the, to the Baroque duet records, to the cornet stuff, I mean, it's, he covers all of it. It's but stunning. isn't it, it is, but isn't it amazing to, you think about virtuoso trumpet players and who makes the list, right? Mm -hmm. Now look at someone like, for example, I'll throw another name out here, which is Alan Bizzuti, right? Who when, when I was young, and you, sure. you hear Bazzuti play and his ability to master the instrument in a way that was just unbelievable, right? That's oh, a different, absolutely. different type of virtuosity, I think, than Winton, for example. Quite different. Yeah. yeah. And I think intentionally different. And I don't think it's, uh, this is the hard part. I think when you're talking about virtuosos and virtuosity, you're just talking about who's in the club and I don't, this is like trying to talk about who's better. I don't think there's any better. No, there. it's not I, better. I just think it's yeah. like, okay, you, these people know the secret handshake and they're in the room. Right. right? Because what and, Winton, what Winton has obviously gone after as a younger man was a really broad musical base that has narrowed to the jazz side of things by his own choice, not because right. he couldn't do it. It's just, but this is what he has chosen to do. I don't think it's a right or a wrong. It's been right. whatever he's done. Where what Alan Vizzuti seems to have done over his career is say, okay, listen, here's what everybody thinks the trumpet can do, and I'm going to show you that those aren't the limits of the instrument in any way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and, 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 and that's been uh, at least part of what he has done in an unbelievably uh, innovative and creative way and musical way. So I think absolutely he's in the, he's in the clubhouse there too. Well, yeah, I, I remember hearing Winton when I was an undergrad. I, we maybe, I know we've talked about this at some point, but... Uh, traveled down near Pittsburgh to North Hills High School to hear him play with the band there. And, you know, and being in the room that afternoon when he did the clinic, being like, you know, 12, 15 feet away from him going, oh, oh, <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. And we had heard the recordings, but there it was, you know, and the mastery is just incredible. Um, I, Brian, you, I, I don't want to. No, keep going. Know, I know you like to just chime in here and say a lot, but. <laughs> Uh, I, here's another one that's in the room then, and I like the way we're kind of putting this, Ole Edvard Antonsen. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, if you're going to steer someone toward ease of... It, that recording that he did with that small group at, uh, of Napoli, have you, have you <laughs> yeah. checked that out? It's he, it's like he's taken a nap. So masterful, he's bored. He, <laughs> he's bored. He's rubbing his eye <laughs> in the middle, like... <laughs> yeah, it's spectacular. Yeah, 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 absolutely. He's clear. And he's another one, a, a person I haven't been able to see live. You know, I always want to see, uh, well, you guys remember this at ITG a couple of years ago. I'm going to change this up just a little bit. We were yeah. all playing. We were going to do that double, um, the double trumpet ensemble thing to open the concert. Mm -hmm. And right before us was Tina uh, um, Ding-Helseth, right? Tina Ding-Helseth, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I had never heard her live. And we had talked about this because when we hear people on recordings, it's always like, okay, these people sound great. I need to see them live. I need to know. So she was sound checking right before us, 
We walked in. Bill, you're sitting right behind me. I walked all the way up to the front row in that van and just sat down. Yep. And she starts playing, and I start smiling because, oh, my gosh, she sounded spectacular. You know, to hear that in the room, and, it, you know, it's a dress rehearsal where I don't – she didn't appear to be marking in any way. No. She was playing, and it just was like – I was like, yeah. okay, okay, good. I'm now very, very happy because you just never know. The first time uh, when I first heard the big fat band. I heard the recording, mm-hmm. the first recording right. of that, and I thought my first initial thought was, wow, this is like the best produced album I've ever heard. <laughs> and then about a year and a half later was the first time I ever got to see them live, and I get there early, and I'm sitting 10th row dead center. I'm looking, you know, right, the lead trumpet bell, Wayne's bell's pointed like right at my head, and they started playing, and I thought, oh, wow, I think the engineer had an easier job than I thought. Like, they <laughs> sound like that live. They sound right. that good and that clear live. It was great to hear that in person. So Ole is not a person I've heard live, but I desperately want to. When I hear oh that, goodness, kind yeah. of, that kind of artistry, right back to the, where we started, it's better in person. You know, so as, as good as recordings can be, even, you know, live recordings, which you can watch, being in the room adds so much more. So he's definitely somebody that's in the clubhouse. And go back to Tina too. Of course, oh you yeah, know that she she was a cornet player. Here we go. There See? it is. See, so it says a lot. There Unbelievable. It is. <sighs> Unbelievable. It's always, it's always the cornet with you. <laughs> you know, and you look at in our discipline too. There's a way for someone to be a virtuoso without you know look at principal trumpet players and orchestras you qual- you would still qualify that as virtuosic playing even though you might not hear them out front doing a solo you may or may not but in the way that they do that job they do right. it at that level right and to that end can someone be a virtuoso second trumpet player in an orchestra yeah, absolutely isn't this right? the isn't yeah. this what vince chickowitz is right not just as a teacher i mean i think maybe now he's known more as a teacher but he had a career as playing second trumpet in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and that's just not an easy job. <laughs> you know, right. It's just, yeah. it's, it's not one of those, <laughs> I, I think a lot of times it's like, oh, yeah, who's playing first and the rest of the section, but that's not how this works. We yeah. all know, you know, it's true that you're only as good as your weakest link. So if you have a section that's stacked with somebody like Vince Chickwitz, who is a dedicated second trumpet player that knows how to do that job and do that job well, that whole job is making, you know, Bud Hurseth's job easier. And mm-hmm. he did that job masterfully. So you put those two together, you can't help but have an unbelievable section. Right. right. And those are, you know, I, I'm, I'm in cycling mode now. It's summer. Here we are. The tour should be on. I'm really <laughs> in withdrawal, man. You and the bikes. I know. I can't help the it. Drug fest. But this is the <laughs> nice. <laughs> but this is the domestique thing, right? Like there are guys who are, who, who have not won the tour, haven't won a classic or whatever, but they're the guys who are pull, pulling everybody up the hill and leading the way and who are willing to be in that place. But there is a virtuosity to that, an ability, an ease, a, a skill set, you know. Absolutely. And I think this happens, if I can bring this back to Trumpet, because um, I don't think a Why lot of people, we? I don't think a lot of people are thinking, oh, sure, the domestique and the Tour de France, yeah. of course I know what that means. Exactly. They don't. They don't. No. No. I think everyone knows. They Anyway, go ahead. Why don't you clear it up for us now that you're cycling? <laughs> now that we've gotten you going. <laughs> you got him on the bike. And oh still no gosh. pictures, Joey. Yeah, we still like, haven't seen any no pictures. Video. Because I'm actually on the bike. I, if you want me to crash, I could try and take a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to go well for any of us. All right. But the idea, this is where I started with the idea of, I think, it, it's easier for us to look at soloists because they're standing out front and, and it's much more a common thought of that's the virtuoso standpoint. But where you're going next is very important of if people do this thing, this thing, or this job particularly well, there is a virtuosity of playing principal trumpet in an orchestra or playing principal mm-hmm. trumpet in a band the same way that there is playing second trumpet uh, in, a, in an orchestra or second trumpet in a, in a band or in a jazz band playing lead trumpet. I mean, you look at somebody like Wayne Bertrand, right? You know, Wayne's probably the, one of the best known, uh, you know, commercial trumpet players in the world. And there's a reason for that. When he's playing lead in a big band, yeah, that's, that's, that's how that goes, right? And right. I would absolutely call his approach not just of the instrument, but musically how he's going at it, virtuosic, right? Right. In the right. same in the same way of somebody like Bud Herseth, or you know, if we're talking about active players now, you can look at Chris Martin, you can look at Mike Sachs, these guys who have a long career of playing principal trumpet in a major symphony orchestra. These guys know what they're doing. These guys are doing this at an incredibly high level. Those are virtuosos of those 
jobs. And the same thing does happen in second and third and fourth players. It's absolutely part of that. Yeah, I think that's that's what I'd hope to get to is that that it is possible to achieve that within the discipline in any chair. You don't necessarily have to be the person out front or known as a world-class soloist to be a virtuoso what you do. And we often refer to teachers as somebody like as a master teacher, but there's virtuosity in that as well, right? The teaching aspect, right? Someone could be a virtuoso teacher, I think. If you're able to manage all the, you know, you bring the mastery, you bring all the technical ability to do things, uh, but yet you're also really good at managing the personalities and dealing with the politics and all those things. Um, interesting to apply it to all that stuff, you know? I do think it's harder to apply to teachers when you look at the uh, essentially the definition of the word because mm -hmm. the definition of the word implies your performance, right? So with teaching, it implies the results of your performance upon a student in which there are lots of variables. Right. You know, because if we look into the public school system, uh, one of the, I think, largest problems we have in the public school system is teachers are evaluated based on the student's tests right but it, it doesn't mm. matter so if there's but there's so many more variables than just what the teacher can do with them you know there's there's right. home life there's student interest there's you know what what happened to them that particular week and the same thing happens with us so the idea that we can connect with students and do these sorts of things to have that as a label of virtuosity is that might be stretching a little bit a little stretch for you it might be a bit of a stretch for me <laughs> brian what do you think well, I, I guess I would agree, but I think there are there are master teachers who negotiate all of those variables, um, even to the extent that they may streamline the admission process so that they can get a certain kind of profile of a student mm. that they that they work well with and they know will work in that program. Um, so I think that can that can certainly be be true. But um, do you, there, do you there think are that's places, cheating? Oh, here we go. I, I knew where this is going. <laughs> It's definitely not cheating. Everyone was cheating, okay? <laughs> it's just like the Tour de France. Everybody's cheating. There, I thought I'd just tee it up for you. Yep. So if we if we, we got students listening, hopefully at some point, you know, a couple, um, toward virtuosity. If you were guiding someone toward virtuosity, let's just kind of sum this up by saying some of those things that really kind of in our mind make the virtuoso, right? We've talked about ease. Right now, ease only comes about through technical mastery. Yeah, and I think this part gets lost is that to be a virtuoso, you have to have technical mastery, and that's its own that's its own study that I think sometimes uh, eats people up alive. And then they're worried if I if I'm a technical master, then I am a virtuoso, and they get lost in that half of it. Mm. Right, where that's yeah. that's just that's just to get in the door. You have to have technical mastery of your instrument. That's a prerequisite if you can look at it that way. If you don't have technical mastery of your instrument, you're not going to be a virtuoso. Right. Right? So not then once you have that, then you have to go to that next level of applying it. And I don't know if it's the next level because it should all be happening at the same time in an ideal world. But then mm -hmm. you do have to make the musical application of that technical mastery so that when you're performing, you're performing music. And you're mm -hmm. giving people music and not just giving people either a technical show or, you know, look what I can do or, you know, hey, I hit all the right notes in all the right order. So I win, you know, all of those right. things to watch out for. Some yeah. people describe it as, you know, you're you're on one hand, you're a technician on the other side. Other hand, you're an artist. And at some point in the trajectory of those two, they meet. And that's where you're virtuoso. I would state that you really should be getting those two things to meet at every stage. Right. And as you grow and develop and get better, you will be closer to a virtuoso status, but each point that it meet, meets, you will be higher and it will be a better um, display. It'll, um, it'll be a more musical, more virtuosic performance. But certainly when you're a young person and starting out playing when Johnny comes marching home, um, you're, you should still try and play it musically, even though you don't have all the technical tools developed. And so those things should still meet at every level as you mm -hmm. as you progress. And I think developing them separately is probably a bad idea. Um, yeah. And I think that if you're just trying to develop the technique, 
I think you're leaving out um, sort of that natural physical and musical approach, um, uh, getting the voice involved, singing what does the musical line do, leading with what the musical line does, because that tends to, in a lot of people, solve a lot of physical issues. Um, so in, in golf, not thinking about what your hips are doing, but thinking more about um, where the ball's going or mm -hmm. how the club head moves, not just what your hands are doing. Um, yeah. So outside of the body a little bit, is it's been proven time and time again, more inner game um, ideas, mm -hmm. um, more mental projection, uh, lens, lets the body uh, follow a little bit better, more naturally. So we're kind of, we're really talking about an informed technical mastery, right? We're talking about a technical mastery in which you are informed musically by what came before you and what's going on around you. And then, and then the other elements of it too, like informing yourself from a, a, a broader education perspective so that, you know, you, you not only realize and are able to get along with other people and all that, but you're, you're bringing so many different perspectives into the music making. It all kind of feeds the same thing. That makes yeah. sense. Now, let's get to the important part. So, Are, is Joey a virtuoso? This is where he's headed. He wants to know if we think of him. Not at all. Not at all. But it, it is related to that because let's take somebody like Winton, right? Who okay. I think I, I would easily call a virtuoso. I think it's clear. Uh, done. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But does he get to say that? Or is it like giving yourself a nickname? Like you can't say it about yourself, right? <laughs> no, no, you can't. You have to wait for someone else to say that. Yeah, like, you know, he can't get up today and say, you know, as a virtuoso. But no, he, right. But I mean, he it's is okay to good, but he it's could okay get away with it. He could, he could get away with it. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to aspire to that. But you, right. Is that your catch? Well, I think that that's all we should be aspiring to, right? right. We're always aspiring right. to greatness but, and, and, and sure. improve growth always. I mean, yes. right. But we don't want to call ourselves that. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. How would how would someone? I would hope that he is comfortable, and, and those who are virtuosos, like the people right. we're talking about here, are comfortable knowing that. But that doesn't stop or limit their growth. But uh, you know, I think it's like nicknames. I don't think well, you I think, can call yourself that. Isn't that part of it too? Those people would never think they're done. Well, I would right, hope, that I would they're hope never not. done growing, which is why they're you know moving at the speed and covering the ground that they are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like this topic a lot, and there's a lot of calling yourself a calling yourself a virtuoso. You brought up a, a quote um, from uh, the the preface to uh, "Look Homeward, Angel" by by Wolf, mm. and he he said um, he said something to the effect of, "I know I'm a genius. Um, I I recognize it too well to shrink from it." Or something like something wow. to that effect. That so, guy should have played trumpet. There's some right. ego there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it is an amazing. It's an amazing book. Um, but right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it too well to shrink from it. it was yeah. fasc fascinating. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah because I think there there are probably no shortage of trumpet players out there that think. I mean, of course, I'm a virtuoso. Have you guys heard me? And <laughs> and that's some that's some bad flawed thinking going on there. Yeah. yeah yeah i i like this there's so many names we haven't mentioned though right like oh, of course we think about virtuosos in and and then automatically you start thinking about different genre and all that but like even if we went to the ones who just like there's the handful of folks that rise to the top and funny one of them for me um and of course we just lost him and that's ryan anthony ryan right anthony. recently passed away and i don't I don't, when I think about Ryan's playing, it's, it's virtuoso level playing to me because of the, just the sheer musicianship of it. Yes, technic, technical master of the horn and a lot of recordings of service that I was just like, man, I, that's amazing playing that I don't really think about him doing, but we were all there standing backstage at that concert at ITG when he played Gabriel's oboe. Oh and I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> because there outrageous. wasn't one of us standing back there that wasn't moved by that. And yeah. to me, that's the, you know, that, that type of heartfelt expression defines it for me more than anything else. Yeah. Brian's a tough one. I mean, having just lost him, he, he was a tremendous uh, musician and, and obviously so much more than that. But if we're going to keep it to right. just the jumper playing, um, we both used to do this camp that uh, Bert Truax did in Dallas. Mm -hmm. uh, and he would do, he had his own faculty there and had a different guest artist every day. 
So he would have, you know, orchestral guy and commercial guy and jazz guy. So I was like, you know, high note guy. So the night before was, was Ryan. So I would fly in the day before and uh, I was able to check out Ryan's show. Um, and he came out and you, you spend the day working with all the kids and then you do an hour long of whatever you want to do. And so Ryan, who lived right there in Dallas, had been working on some stuff, walks out on stage. And this isn't a giant house. This is a room full of mostly high school trumpet players and their families and has maybe four or five horns off to the side, glides out onto the stage, starts talking, introduces what he's talking about, what he's working on, how he's doing it, and then plays. And of course it's gorgeous. And then as he's talking and he's switching horns and bringing out the next piece and talking about what he's worked on, how this has came about, and it's like an hour and you just realize, it just, the effortlessness of his presentation and performance was stunning. So I told him this uh, then. I said, listen, I, I know you're principal trumpet of the Dallas uh, Symphony Orchestra, and I'm, I'm sure you do that really well. It's great. And listen, I heard you with the Canadian Brass, and I'm sure that was really nice, but you've got the wrong job. And of course he right. laughed. <laughs> and I said, here's the job I want for you. Your job should be trumpet soloist, and somehow we should just, as the world, support you in doing this because you do that, mm. what you bring to that, only makes trumpet playing better. It's just, it's amazing how well he does those things in a way that uh, I hadn't seen anybody else do that. And on the commercial side, uh, someone I think of in the same way, if we're talking about just other people to bring in, is Byron Stripling. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Byron, Absolutely. who, you know, I saw him play lead trumpet with the Basie Band when I was a teenager and thought, oh, oh, that's how that goes. That's right. right. It's it just, it was stellar. I, 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 I've, I've often said this is that I've gotten to hear. Lots and lots of, of world-class lead trumpet players. Is obviously, I'm a, I'm a big fan as somebody who likes to play a lot of lead trumpet, so I love lead mm -hmm. trumpet playing. I love great lead trumpet playing. I've heard great lead trumpet playing. I haven't heard any better than I've heard Byron with the Basie Band. I've heard yeah. in that level, but I don't think anything is like qualitatively better. And then you watch him as a soloist. You know, I've gotten to play with him a couple times with some different orchestras around there. He glides out on stage. He's talking. He's playing. He's playing. And, and it's, it's effortless, yep. and it's just music. And when you, and, that that's what you, that's what we're talking about here is that that kind of ease of presentation and then just musical performance where you're watching this and it just brings you in and you can't look anywhere else. No, it's amazing. And, and Byron, I've seen him live too. Every person in that room feels like he's talking to them. Do you know what I mean? Like his ability, he has the crowd right in the palm of his hand. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a rare, that's a really rare person that's on that level. It's not just what his playing is not just a stunt. It's stunningly musical. It's personal. It's invested. Um, it's, um, it's humble. I mean, it's just amazingly open. Um, and yeah, an incredible showman um, mm -hmm. as well. Uh, yeah, but that's, but that's rare, isn't it? Well, I'm it, impressed by, yeah, I'm impressed by anyone who can, you know, essentially host and talk the whole way through a program yet perform their parts, you know, admirably, uh, whether they're playing third trumpet or fifth flugelhorn. But if you can manage wow. to do that, can you imagine tongue. anybody that could do that in some I'm, sort of trumpet ensemble setting? I can't nope. imagine it myself. I am not being specific about any one person. I'm just saying how much I admire anyone that can do that. Can, Even when you, those around him. I think he just threw out his, his uh, clavicle, patting himself on the back yes, there. He did. <laughs> Most common injury in cycling. All right. Well, listen, finally, we reached the portion, <laughs> portion of the program we like to call No Offense. And this is where we highlight something from the trumpet kingdom that is recognized, used, and touted, yet might not make so much sense to us. We feel it's our responsibility, no, our duty to highlight such things to raise awareness, inform the masses, and generally start trouble and cost ourselves sponsors. Today's topic, ready, gentlemen? I'd like to know how you feel about leaving the gadget on your horn when you perform. Now, as we all move toward being virtuosos, we rely on a number of electronic and other devices to help us on our path. Yet, when we step on stage, should it still be there? Let me give the short answer here. No. You, you don't want anything between you and your performance. And not only that, from a purely practical standpoint, we know that anything will make a change. I remember talking to our good friend, and you know, my good friend uh, Fred Powell, when he was designing the Convintage One trumpets. 
Mm. We were we were playing at um, Midwest. I think I was playing there, and he had, hey, here's a prototype. Try this out. And I was playing with a, it was Rob Parton's big band. So I brought it up, played a couple tunes that came off. I said, it seems this, it seems this, and he took the little bitty brace between the first valve slide and the bell bow, and he moved it. I don't know, less than half an inch, and said, try <laughs> this now. And I said, come on. Just and he says, shut up, just go try. And so I went out and played it, and different. And we've seen Wayne Tanabe does these things where he switches out the corks in your spit valve, whether they're, you know, cork or synthetic or plastic, whatever, you know, rubber stops and whether they have the bump in or not. Everything makes a difference. So if your horn is the horn you like, why are you going to slap something on it that will make it play differently? And then there's this part. So one, you don't want to change a good horn. Stop doing that. And this is maybe just me, but I don't think this is just me. When I see a student walk in for an audition or I see somebody walk out on stage to play and there's a little gadget sticking out on their horn, <laughs> I before they've played a note, I have made a judgment. I have made a judgment of what the, what do they got going on there? Mm. And and now they have now they have a hurdle to get over before I'm going to believe they're they're really doing it. Now, are you sure it was a tuner that was clipped on? Maybe it was a rearview mirror so they could see the <laughs> pianist. Maybe. Was that's, it attached to their helmet? That That's not no. going to work either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, either a tuner or one of those other aids. Um, yeah, People slap should, all kinds of things on the lead yeah, pipe. Right. Yeah, take that Take that stuff off when you're going to perform. It's kind of it can be a drag to do it, but yeah, take the extra three minutes, right, and put your instrument back. What about um, those hand protectors around the valve casings? I don't know. Like that's a tough one because some people's skin is so acidic that you know, that's a tough one. I personally don't like them. I don't like the way they feel, but I'm not worried about eating through the valve case either. Right. I just ask people you to know. put clear nail polish on those contact points instead of using mm. that. Mm-hmm. Which sometimes helps. Does it have to be clear? What doesn't have to be? It can be pink. It's pink in Joey's studio. I'm just thinking. obviously. I'm just thinking. You know. Yeah. yeah. I don't love the I don't love the hand coverings just as a general rule. I know some people like them an awful lot, but uh, I do think it can make a, a negative impact on the horn itself. But that I'm not so much worried about those as I'm about just other sort of gadgetry. I think the gadgetry is just. Uh, taking away from your performance. Yeah, it, it sends a message that you need help, especially if it's a clip-on tuner. Let's just go with that one for a minute. I mean, that that does not send the right message about your ability to perform well. Well, not only that, if it's the other ones, like on the lead pipe, which usually are like something you can like pull out and put your mouthpiece in or pull this right. out and move some other stuff around. Okay, if you're going to use that when you're practicing, fine. You're not going to be using that in a performance, so I get know. it off the horn. Right. Gotta check it, do a little warm up be in measures between. <laughs> right. Yeah. Get rid of it. If you're just using your horn, you, why would you want anything that has the possibility of distracting from your performance? If having right. people going, hey, what is that thing? Yeah. And I have been asked that by friends. Hey, what is that little thing on the there? I'm like, oh, that. don't worry about that. Periodic <laughs> maintenance of equipment yeah. shall occur during the performance. <laughs> Well, right. Oh, I'll, speaking of which, we can just go offside, uh, uh, off topic for just a second. Uh, Ed Cord, Ed Cord, one of my uh, recent retired colleagues. Ed worked here at IU for a number of years and a fantastic teacher and a great player and a lovely gentleman. This is one of his pet peeves and mine as well. I, we found out when we both got here, when I got here, that we shared this. Students who walk on stage and the first thing they do is empty their spit. Right. Right. Yes. Oops. Oops. Why are, why are you opening up with let me spit on you? <laughs> like if you do that backstage and you walk on the first thing you should do is play right yes. if you're right. walking on stage Agreed. i actually feel the same way about tuning one of the things i don't understand is why symphony orchestras are still with the antiquated concept of all right here's what we're going to do everybody ready okay sit down quiet everybody shh, 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 shh. okay now we're going to tune up what you're not ready yet just start <laughs> the concert you know right uh you know the, and the same thing when you walk out and take a note is the same thing as walking out and emptying your spit. You're showing your audience, oh, I'm not quite ready yet. I know quite you're ready, ready but it. I'm not ready. Right. And I think the gadgetry is, is similar to that. Oh, I know you came to see a concert, but oh, I'm not going to bother to get all the way ready. Right. You know, This is the way I do this. So I'm just going to go like this. But you know, the people love when the orchestra tunes. For some, it's their favorite part. <laughs> What? That's why we have to stay. That's why it has this to stay. I've heard people say that. Oh, this is my favorite thing when they tune. I love the way that sounds. 
I've never That's heard crazy. anyone say that at a brass band concert. No. Yeah. Brian? No, never. No. Do That's we tune a, in brass band? That's a seek and destroy mission is what that is. <laughs> 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 That's what's going on there. Yeah. Well, listen, that about does it for today. Uh, thanks for joining us on The Open Bell. Stay tuned, subscribe, or whatever works for you. We appreciate your patronage, and so do our sponsors who have no idea what they've gotten themselves into, if there are any left after today. So long for now. Remember to keep an open mind, but more importantly, an open bell. <laughs>